0: you'll probably see huge government spending supported by the Fed, which will no longer be looking at the stock market, but looking at the physical economy. And we're moving towards that. They can Mm -hmm. use central bank digital coins to try and accelerate that process in terms of where money flows to and to micromanage the economy, which which China's already starting to do. But you do that with made in America caveats, Uh, again, using maybe digital currency to understand who's trading with who, so it can't just flow offshore. You do that behind tariff barriers, you do that alongside a spending plan where you subsidize companies to bring production home and raise wages. And, yeah, maybe the quid pro quo of that is we don't hang the billionaires. You know, yeah, you get to yeah. keep what you have got. We're not going to kill you, but you have to make sure that everyone else now catches up.
1: Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with global strategist Michael Every. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Michael, in which he predicts we're headed into an era of great change and disruption, as events will force real structural change on our leading institutions and geopolitical partnerships, head over to our channel at youtube.com wealthian and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Michael and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. And don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. You know, if everyone watching right now takes these two simple steps, it really does make a difference in helping this channel reach a lot more people. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Michael Avery. All right, well, as, as we get to the latter part here of the discussion, um, let's get into the, your, your market outlook. So much of what you talked about is lots of uncertainty ahead. Um, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I think lots of turmoil, right? You know, we talked about the, the, the trap that the central banks are in, right? Really, no matter what they decide, it, it, they're going to lose, right? There's going to be negative repercussions. Um, and you've mentioned many times about the um, ridiculous... Uh, levels that many asset prices uh, have have risen to, and we you know, we didn't get into this discussion, but I've gotten into many prior ones with past experts on uh, almost any sector of the the financial markets you look at, they are trading at all-time high levels of valuation, um, not just prices, but 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 valuation metrics, um, and you know you look at that and you look at your predictions of what's going to happen mm-hmm. with the economy, what's going to happen with you know blowing up uh, you know geopolitical uh, uh, alliances and whatnot right now, Um, it is hard to see anything other than, um, you know, a a, a soup of things that markets tend to not like. So uh, let me ask you, um, with your investing hat on and looking at the markets from here, what do you you think is, is most likely to happen?
0: Okay, near term, the big issue is policy error or not. Do central banks hike as curves are now pricing for or don't they? And if they do, policy error, crash deflation, as much as that's possible with supply-side inflation uh, and you know serious, serious problems. If they don't, more of this uh, you know, Bitcoin idiocy uh, you know, for as long as it can last until eventually central banks feel they do have to do something. But to be blunt, what I find more interesting than that, even though that in itself, we're already talking about huge upswings and, and downswings, what's next? After the system has proven itself to have failed, either through yet another 2008 style policy era, or policy continuity, but the physical economy experiencing 2008, because you just don't have stuff relative you know, to the supply of wealth for some individuals, what does the structure then look like? And I do most of my thinking on those grounds. What does political economy look like? Do we see monetization and modern monetary theory and, uh, and central bank digital coins and helicopter drops into people's accounts, but you have to only spend it- or made in America products. Do we see that behind tariff barriers? Do we see it behind you know sudden really genuine shift to making America and making Europe and making Japan? Do we see geopolitical lashing out where people basically try and blame other people and you know, reflate the economy through more you know traditional methods, shall we say, which we've tried on and off you know <laughs> over the past couple of hundred years? Um, or do we just see complete chaos because no one's in charge and no one's actually able to understand what to do? each block or each country is going to be in a different position europe's ability to do things will be different to america's will be different to japan's will be different to the uk will be different to china but i I really and have done for about five or six years focus purely or mostly on understanding after this what then because you can hedge your you can hedge the policy error that's coming up you can't hedge what's following
1: all right, so that's our next interview, Michael, our next hour long interview is going into that part. So a little <laughs> unfair of me to ask this, but um, I'm gonna say most of our viewers here are, are US viewers. And if you're from a different region of the world, folks, sorry, we'll get to that in that next hour interview with Michael. But in terms of what you think is more likely to happen, and I'm, I'm not gonna hold you to this as an ironclad prediction, yeah. but looking at the US, we, we, we have the, 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 the crunch, the breakage of the system. Um, given that long list of possibilities that you just mentioned, which do you think are more likely?
0: The one that's most likely to me is going to be a combination of the populist elements of Joe Biden's policies and the populist elements of Trump's policies. So it's going to be a much more America-focused, America-centric, make America great again, but working class, and hopefully, uh, you know, ticking all the right boxes in terms of keeping everyone happy, you know, demographically, uh, focus, which will be enormously disruptive to global markets that rely on the international flow of dollars and the US dollar as the freely available uh, currency to trade everything off the back of, Uh, and in terms of presumption that the US will be the world's largest importer forever. Uh, And indeed, the overall structure of this you know, ridiculous system we have today where after we finish speaking, I'll go and check, you know, what other newly created asset has suddenly become worth billions of dollars. All that will go up in smoke. I think that's my logical guess based on history.
1: Okay, great. Um, and let me just see if I can uh, restate that a little bit. You tell me if I'm restating it incorrectly. Um, you know, right now we have kind of an anything goes um, environment here in the States and that's allowing... Uh, the people at the top uh, to concentrate their advantage to get ahead even further, right? And that's why we have these, you know, we have a quarter trillionaire right now in Elon Musk, right? The world's first quarter yeah. trillionaire, right? Um, sounds like what you're saying is, is it, it will be a bit of a return to um, more of a focus on the working class, which I, I've got to say, you know, after the middle class, just getting completely eviscerated uh, over the past couple of decades, that, that might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, it, it might be limiting some of the upward mobility of the the top echelon of folks in America. You know, we, we're already beginning to see, you know, wealth taxes proposed on billionaires, and now shifting down to millionaires, mm-hmm. and ideas mm-hmm. of Janet Yellen talking about a um, unrealized capital gains tax, which is, is a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, crazy, but it, but it, but it does seem a little bit of a little redistributive, right? Like, hey, we're we're not going to let you guys walk away with all of the the pie. And we're going to sort of forcibly try to, you know, keep enough of it on the lower classes so that it's, quote, unquote, fair. And maybe that's political speak for, quote, unquote, they're not going to, you know, pull out the guillotine and hang us politicians or or kill us politicians. Uh, I see you sort of nodding as I'm saying this, so I'm not too far off base here.
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, to put it in more kind of traditional macroeconomic terms, you'll probably see huge government spending supported by the Fed, which will no longer be looking at the stock market but looking at the physical economy and we're moving towards that they can use central bank digital coins to try and accelerate that process in terms of where money flows to and to micromanage the economy which which china's already starting to do but you do that with made in america caveats uh, again using maybe digital currency to understand who's trading with who so it can't just flow offshore you do that behind tariff barriers you do that alongside a spending plan where you subsidize companies to bring production home and raise wages and yeah, maybe the quid pro quo of that is we don't hang the billionaires. You know, yeah, you get to yeah. keep what you got. We're not gonna kill you, but you have to make sure that everyone else now catches up. Yeah, yeah, and is it, is it
1: fair to perhaps assume that along with all that spending will become, what will, will also come uh, a stronger tax regime?
0: Well, I would think so because, you know, people will have to contribute. I mean, corporations would have to. Ironically, if you're basically electronically creating money, you don't have to tax in the same way but it's all about power. You have to make sure they don't have the money to bribe the next set of politicians to reverse the policy. Right. That's what it really comes down to. Right. Kill, kill right. the lobbyists and you, and you entrench the system that you want.
1: Okay, and I just want to underscore as well that that type of vision does jive a lot with what Neil Howe was telling us is just what, what you sort of expect from a fourth turning. Uh, you expect to see much more centralized control. Uh, and frankly, you expect to see a demand for more centralized control from the populace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you've got the, the folks running the system wanting to take more control over it and you have the folks that they're ruling over saying, yeah, we, we want strong leaders here at this point. Um, all right. So, uh, perhaps unfair of me to ask you this in the last couple of minutes here, Michael, I know you do not give financial advice. You do not manage money. Um, but, you know, a, a, as you look and let's say with a shorter term lens, you know, sort of for the, t- towards the kind of break breakdown that you were talking about, uh, do you have any advice for the concerned investor who's just trying to prudently protect their wealth? You know, maybe prudently grow it through through these times ahead. Um, any general advice for them, and/or are there any asset classes that you particularly, uh, you know, think are prudent to to consider owning, or ones that you wouldn't touch with a ten foot pole?
0: Okay, let me start with the ten foot pole because that's where I begin more naturally. I would be very careful in terms of geographical placement. And that's got to be a product of how you actually think in terms of geopolitics. Now, people can disagree with me entirely. I'm not claiming I've got a crystal ball or can see the future. But think about how you think the world will look. And don't presume it's like a flat earth where all countries are equal. Don't look at a chart and say, well, that country's equities have really underperformed for the past year. Therefore, they must be cheap. There may be a reason why they're cheap. You know just because something looks different on line do a bit of digging into the geography and the politics and understand why that might be the case because sometimes they just diverge and they don't come back up again so that's one at the other end of the you probably got to dive in let me be blunt i'm not talking my own book but i'm increasingly tempted in my own money to put one percent of my assets into complete digital crap because you know if, if there's a digital crap etf one percent of your money in it if that's di- if that's spread across you know a, a thousand different complete jokes Who knows? One of them might be the next Elon Musk, at which point suddenly I I can afford to retire tomorrow. And, uh, you know, and I'll do these calls for pleasure rather than for any kind of financial remuneration.
1: That's sort of your short term. If you can't beat
0: them, join them. Exactly. But a very, 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 very small slice, just just logically, given the returns that you can get. But in in between that, uh, I I really think, as I said to you last time we spoke on, on, on a different platform, Preservation of capital, I think at the moment, in this kind of volatile environment is far more important than trying to think I can pick up an extra percentage point here or an extra couple of basis points there. Yeah, right. when, you, when you see how volatile things can get.
1: So let, let, let's dig into that, because one thing you could do is just move to cash, right? And cash is vulnerable to inflation, um, but, you know, uh, and so that that's one potential risk. It also raises the question, do you just put it all cash in your home currency? Do you distribute amongst other currencies? Um, w- when you think about uh, preser- capital preservation, do you think about it as just being in cash or do you think about it as sort of like some of the you know, tried and true traditional safe havens like you know, maybe some treasuries, maybe some commodities like a precious metal or something else?
0: Food producing land.
1: Food producing land,
0: okay. Yeah, land in itself, okay. But if it doesn't actually have any water and can't produce food, it's a fraction of the value of land that, if needs be, you could grow food on, you know, for yourself or a scale. I'm not saying this because I'm a tin foil hat, duct tape and shotgun kind of guy. And those who know me know that I'm completely the opposite. But genuinely, that's an area that's likely to see outsized returns, whatever kind of paradigm you have going forward, even if it's just for climatic, reason, climatic reasons, that there will be you know, an upside to, to anything that can reduce food. Um, well, and
1: it's pretty safe. Self- yeah and don't worry michael in, in my previous life here that many of these viewers of this video know me from um it, it's it's really about resilience um it's not about yeah. building a bunker and hiding from the world um it's just like you were talking about with the supply chains right it's just living with greater resilience and um you know obviously you can go buy you know your own acreage and and build it into a food production system on your own if you want to um, a lot of people don't have the uh you know the youth, uh, the vigor, the interest, the time to do that. Um, I did get into many different ways in which you can invest in productive farmland uh, in this video right here with Craig Wishner, managing um, director of Farmland LP. Uh, so if you are interested in learning more about what solutions about, like what Michael was just talking about there with, with investing in land, that's a good video to watch. Um, All right, Michael, well, look, as we wrap up here, um, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, It's always such a great, fascinating interview with you. We need to schedule two hours uh, for our next interview. (laughs) Um, But uh, for folks that have really enjoyed this discussion and want to learn more about you and follow your work, where can they go?
0: Uh, Well, I'm afraid my direct work is for clients only, but I do appear quite frequently on Zero Hedge so uh usually like with a 24-hour delay after i've after i've written the piece but if for those who can afford to wait that long which hopefully is most people uh from you know if, if you if you google my name michael library and Bank, there will normally be quite a lot that comes up
1: all right great i'll put up the zero hedge url here so folks that are interested can go there type in michael levery and uh, i think they pick up your your daily almost every day, Michael. So it's, uh, they'll, they'll find a lot there. All right. Well, look, I cannot thank you uh, enough again, Michael. Um, really appreciate it. Really appreciate you taking the time on a busy morning, uh, your time there in Singapore. Um, thank you so much and look forward to having you on the program again.
0: Thank you. Me too. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Okay. Now's the point in the interview where we switch and talk to the lead partners at New Harbor Financial, the financial advisory firm officially endorsed. By Wealthion, um, We're going to react to what Michael said, but also talk about what the market has done since last week's video. Uh, John Lodra, Mike Preston, great to see you guys again. Hello, Adam. Nice to see you.
2: Good to be back with you again, Adam. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Well, look, uh, another great mind, uh, Michael Every, um, God, just such a big thinker. Really, really helpful to get his perspective kind of looking at the macro situation um, being situated outside the U.S. Um, both in terms of uh, you know, some of the things he told us about the Asia market that maybe we don't think about uh, on a day to day basis, uh, being based here in the US, but also interestingly, a lot of the similarities in terms of the conclusions that he's drawing that a number of our, our recent guest experts have as well. And, guys, let's start with his commentary about how no matter what the, the central banks of the world do next, it really is a losing proposition for them. He talked about how if they tighten, they lose. If they continue stimulating, they lose. If they just play for time and, and delay, they lose. Um, he also talked about kind of the um, the inevitability of needing to redraw the supply chains uh, around the world and that that's going to create a lot of disruption, at least in the near term, as those no, th- those new sort of, you know, both supply lines and geopolitical alliances get redrawn. That's probably a process I'm going to guess is going to be measured in, in years, maybe even decades. Um, but everything I took from what he said was to say, hey, look, um, we are staring at uh, you know an era of disruption coming ahead. And I think he used the word disaster. I'll be a little nicer and say disruption. Uh, but of course, that led him to saying, look, I think from an investing standpoint, you know, capital preservation is, is the top priority right now. Um, but Mike, let's start with you. What, what else did you take away from, uh, from Michael's words there?
3: Yeah, let me answer first the question about the Fed is trapped. There's a lot of different ways to say it, but the Fed is trapped, you know, almost certainly. They, they have um, printed money like crazy in the last 10 to 15 years. They taught the rest of the world's central banks how to do it and exported that around the world. And so we have all the major economies printing money like mad. A total of twenty-seven trillion dollars, I think, since the financial crisis. You know, it was like sixteen trillion just a few years ago in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. We're up to 20, 27 trillion. and that's just in assets that have you know been added to central bank balance sheets or money that's been printed, which has been further magnified through fractional reserve lending. It's caused worldwide debt to go from something like. 180 trillion to almost 300 trillion now worldwide debt and all of that is only serviceable with rates near zero. Rates go up, the whole the whole thing is over, you know? So everything that entire system relies on this plan. This plan A because there is no plan B. And you know, that's why we think it's kind of a crime what central banks have done. They're certainly smart enough to know what they're doing. We just wish they would have been more honest about it because we don't really think that there's a plan B. This has to work or else. The whole system needs it, you know? And we weren't asked to vote on that or weren't asked our opinion on it. And I think that's a real problem. So we think they're trapped. We think there's a moment of, of reversion to the mean coming. I know it sounds somewhat repetitive to say similar things every week, but it's the single most overvalued market Um, by ways that we measure it in US history, even the the Shiller price earnings ratio, even unadjusted is up right around 40 right now. If you adjust it for other things like profit margins, it's above 50. If you look at stock market cap, the GDP, the Buffett indicator, it's at all time highs, well over 200%. So, you know, that's my response to, is the Fed backed into a corner? Yes, absolutely. And, And I'll just say one or two quick things about your your other uh, talk about times of disruption and opportunity. We are almost certainly in a fourth turning. A lot of your viewers will know what that means, but it's, the, it's time of maximum effort, maximum change, maximum risk. And you know, almost certainly there's going to be opportunities to come out of that. It's going to be, there's going to be risk and danger going through that. And um, you know, we think the, the investment opportunities were going to probably come about elsewhere in the world emerging Asia, maybe even Latin America, emerging markets in general. It's not to say that they're going to be a straight line higher from here. But the the era of investing in the USA because it's the cleanest, dirty shirt, it's probably ending and there's going to be opportunities elsewhere.
1: All right. Yeah. And, you know, Michael mentioned uh, uh, a little bit of that where he talked about how, you know, right now sort of China is the 800 pound gorilla in Asia, uh, from a trading partner standpoint, but that uh, he thinks that, you know, supply lines and trading partnerships are going to get redrawn here and you're going to have sort of these multiple centers of excellence uh, there that he talked about. And to your point, Mike, there should be some very uh, you know interesting investment opportunities in those uh, economies, those nations that are participating in those. Um, so, again, it's not all it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, you mentioned the fourth turning. And I'll, I'll just repeat what Neil Howe said. He said uh, You know, hey, it's going to be different. You know, the way that things are going to be structured coming out of this fourth turning, but that doesn't necessarily mean worse. Um, And yes, it's going to be a painful ride going through all that uncertainty and that disruption, Uh, but it doesn't mean that we're, you know, heading into an Armageddon period. It just means we're heading into a new period that's going to have a whole brand new set of opportunities there. So um, that's that's a big part of what we're trying to do here with these videos is, is see what's coming. Um, and yeah, while we may have a period where we're going to need to batten down the hatches, um, what we're really, you know, we'll be battening down those hatches so that we can make it through the storm and then have the potential to invest in lots of the upside that'll hopefully come afterwards. Uh, John, let me hand it to you. Anything else to add to what, uh, what, what Michael said?
2: Not too much. I guess the geography point that he raised about, you know, kind of, uh, geographical selection is likely to be all that much more, more important. We, we agree with that. You know, um, last number of years, it's been all about the U.S. markets more or less. Uh, most global markets and, and emerging markets have have trailed, and, and uh, the silver lining of that, I, I, I would say, is that uh, the valuations of those kinds of geographies, especially emerging markets, are, are that much more attractive on a relative basis than the U.S. market. Um, so and not to suggest that in a, in a you know, kind of a material sell-off in U.S. markets that overseas and emerging markets would be immune from, from any kind of pullback, that's not at all what I'm saying, but um, you know, align, uh, aligned with those economic shifts uh, geographically, we think that you know, the selection of investments are gonna be really important. We, we have long favored emerging markets for these last several years relative to, to U.S. stocks from a longer term valuation standpoint, we, we continue that. Um, it helps that many of these countries are resource based economies, which, you know, in an inflationary, inflationary environment should, should help support um, the, those countries. But, you know, just anecdotally, um, you know, supply chains are, are on everybody's mind. I tried to get some new brake pads for my bicycle <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago. I, I got the last one in the shop, and, and to order more, the backlog is out until like February, March of next year. It's pretty crazy. Um, but I, I was talking to a, an executive a, of a cosmetic manufacturing company. Uh, and, and one of the big bottlenecks in their business has been packaging, you know, containers and things like that. And they've they've talked about a, an attempt to re-onshore some of that packaging that you know would oftentimes be outsourced or, or sourced from from China and other overseas markets. So yeah, there's going to be big economic shifts that I think will have uh, overtures into uh, investment allocations. Yeah, I, well, let's dig into that just for a second here because
1: a, a key takeaway, you know, from the conversation with Michael is the you know we talked at the beginning of the, the interview about just the the ridiculous dissociation right now between the financial economy and the real economy and uh i, I want to give sort of two juxtapositions um uh you know michael and i were uh, kind of ranting about the appreciation in shiba inu which is um you know the the knockoff coin of dogecoin which is a knockoff coin of bitcoin um uh, I'm going to put up the headline here from uh, an article today that appeared on Zero Hedge. Um, it basically showed that there was a, a an investor here who put 8K into Shiba Inu last year, and it's now worth five billion dollars. <laughs> and when you can have that kind of uh, just mind-boggling wealth, basically just you know cogitated uh, you know out of thin air. Um, it, uh, it shows you where we are in the story, right, where um, we're, we're literally living in a fantasy land when it comes to the pricing of financial assets these days. Now, you contrast that to the real economy where, um, you know, the prices of essentials are, are going up because we literally can't get our hands on them right now. I mean, the supply chain's. Are breaking down, and so you know most of the conversation that I had with Michael really was about kind of the the, the real economy and how it's going to have to be redrawn and, and made more anti fragile and, and all that stuff. And uh, I, I think back to a conversation interview I did earlier in the year with Steen Jacobson from Saxo Bank, um, who was very big on on um, again on the real economy for you know a number of reasons, but but basically because so much of our infrastructure worldwide, but especially here in the states. You know is aging it needs to be replaced um and that's true of many countries right now so there's increasing global competition for the resources just to rebuild our bridges and highways and ports and things like that um not you know even forgetting about one to electrify our transportation grid and stuff like that um, Steen also made the really interesting observation that um and this was before supply chains really broke down was that the, the digital economy was getting so good at selling products you know amazon and whatnot you know people clicking the buy button to get a product but it was finding itself constrained by the number of delivery trucks delivery drivers you know <laughs> distribution centers etc where you know these real world physical constraints are becoming the bottleneck on the digital economy going forward so where i'm going with all this is it really does shine a bright light that you know investing in real things Commodities, the companies that mine them, and the companies that then transform those those raw commodities into value-added products. Um, there's really big investment opportunity there. Um, so John, let me let me let you just react to that. And and then Mike, I'm going to ask you uh, about what the markets have done over the past week.
2: Yep. No, real real things. Um, you know, the the inflation we're seeing there, uh, we don't think is is a, a mistake. Um there's, you know, the disjointed supply chains. But yeah, I mean, any, anytime you kind of um you know, kind of in, make an imbalance of supply and demand. And, and certainly, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of, um, you know, stimulus sloshing around out there still that is, has stressed, uh, from a de- demand standpoint, the supply chains, um, you know, but, um, you know, many times people think, think of, um, you know, tangible assets and they think of real estate, you know, that real estate can be a great place. Um, uh, you know, uh, Michael, I think, um, nicely talks about, uh, uh, land with productive food growing capabilities, um, you know, as, as being a good place. We totally agree with that. Certainly uh, um, land, but with that income and, and inflation hedging capability, not to mention to be able to feed um, human beings uh, is, a, is a really important place to be. Um, I, I will caution, however, that many forms of real estate are in their own bubble-like states. You know, um, making the news this week is that the uh, median home price um uh, in this country uh, surpassed $400,000 um, for the first time ever. And, and I think the uh, year over year increase so far is is a, is a record or certainly a record in, in any recent years. So we, we've seen massive appreciation just in the last quarter, I think it was up like 13% uh, nationally. So we've had this r- massive ramp up in in home prices, which obviously is kind of important to humans uh, to, to be able to find shelter. Um, and this this, of course, ties back into the you know, the the notion that the Federal Reserve is entrapped, in, in, in um, you know, because um, to, to let these kinds of things run further amok uh, just means, you know, squeezing everyday people more and more. Um, yet, um, the antidote to that is to raise interest rates and withdraw some of the stimulus. And when you have a, a economy, everything from households to corporations to governments as indebted as they are right now, the system almost can't, withstand that. So,
1: you know, there's no good choices here. Yeah, no good choices. Um, you know, and it's on so many different dimensions uh, just hearing the talk there. John was thinking, you know, that the, 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 fed, you know, on one hand, it's, it's, it's damned because uh, you know, if it were to raise rates, um, it would create our asset prices, crash the system, uh, make everybody angry, but particularly make, you know, sort of the, the oligarch class that the fed sort of, you know, uh, you know, responds to um, incredibly angry at the Fed. So all that political pressure. Right. Um, but of course, if it continues to let inflation run hot, um, you get to the point where you have a critical mass of just the public, the masses themselves get into a point where they can't take it anymore and start rising up. So it's almost like, you know, what's worse for those guys? The um, the, the punishing power of the oligarchs, the punishing power of of you know the the, the public masses. Um, I I don't know, but I, it, it it just seems like again, uh, no matter which road this goes down, uh, they're going to be uh, there's going to be a reckoning for them. Um, so and, and sadly, we're all going to be the collateral damage of that. So um, all right, Mike, uh, let me move over to you. Let's talk about what the markets have done since last week. Um, uh, let's talk about the major indices in general, and then we can talk about you know a couple of specific asset classes like gold, crypto, and a few others.
3: Yeah, it's just a story of of all time highs, really, uh, just about everywhere, continually. Um, you know, the uh, S and P sitting here right around twenty six hundred. It had a four percent or so pullback, and just in a matter of days, over the last week or a little more than a week, it went right back to its all time high. And um, you know the, the trend has been relentless to say this, to say the least. The the tech stocks, the, the Fang stocks have been a big part of that. Uh, there's a lot of days where, where breadth is negative. There's actually more decliners than advancers, and yet the indexes, uh, the indices are up quite a bit. And it's just the it's the strong stocks. You know, Microsoft, Google, Apple, and Amazon both report tonight. Um, but by and large, the reports have been greeted very, very uh, favorably, and, and these stocks have been breaking out. And of course, is the poster child stocks like Tesla, which you know added another 150 or 160 billion dollars the other day on news uh, from from an order from Hertz, a rental car company, and these stocks are just moving gargantuan amounts based on the fundamental news related to them, and it's just. You, know, you were talking about that crypto earlier, how an $8,000 investment is now worth 5 billion. Nothing really seems to mean anything anymore at the moment. And we are in a mania, we're convinced of it, but certainly it feels interminable, like it's never gonna end. We, we feel very strongly that it will. But so the S&P is there uh, at all time highs, the, the breadth and the eternals are not good, yet the, the market is there uh, based on the, the strength of a few stocks. Volatility is, is at multi-month lows. The VIX, the volatility index is down at 15 or 16, it hasn't been there in many months. That's at, at year lows. And you know, lastly, I think we should probably talk about gold, gold and silver. I mean, if you look at the charts of gold, silver, gold, particularly to me right now, it's, it's one of the few things as frustrating as it is that has not gone vertical. And gold is in this long sideways, triangle-shaped consolidation going back to August of 2020, going on almost a year and a half. A big consolidation, it looks to us like it wants to break out to the upside. There's been two tries to break out to the downside in recent months, looks like it wants to break to the upside. 1800 right now on gold would project to around 2500 if it broke out to the upside out of that triangle, just on basic projection from technical analysis. Obviously, that's not a guarantee, but there's nothing really to buy here today. That's that has any sane value attached to it, other than maybe some gold, silver, some select foreign, you know, markets or emerging markets, um, base metals, commodity type plays. So, you know, heavy cash and, and and exposed to those areas is what we
1: think continues
3: to make sense. So,
1: we'll watch and wait. All right. Well, well said. Um, just to build on that a tiny bit, um, I, I guess I do want to give um, props to to David Hunter, you know, who we've had on this program, and he's had the most, you know, courageous, some would say, outrageous predictions uh, over the course of the year. But many of them have been coming true, and uh, you know, David has has very publicly said he expects this latest, you know, secular bull market to end, you know end of this year, beginning of next year, and to end with a you know epic blow off top, um, just an epic mania. And that, that I think to your points there, Mike is could very well what we're, we're seeing here right now, and I think back to the famous McKay book on the, the madness of crowds, right where um, uh, you know, men go mad in herds. And that's what you see at the end of every bubble market where everybody rushes in, everybody throws caution to the wind. And that's when you get, you know, a tulip bulb that sells for more than the most expensive uh, building, you know, uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, or you get a Shibu Inu coin that, that uh, you know, investment that goes to five billion dollars or whatever. But we, we do seem to be seeing uh, Hunter's you know, prediction playing out here. Um, you, you mentioned um, the S&P. Uh, at an all-time high. And you mentioned VIX at, at uh, series low. I just want to put up this chart really briefly. I put in my recent uh, video on stagflation. Uh, it's a chart that was put up by Sven Henrik that shows that the VIX to S&P ratio has never been lower. And that, again, just shows an all-time high in market complacency, um, which is exactly the kind of extreme you would see before you have some sort of violent correction in the market. So again, not saying that that indeed is going to happen next, but we're seeing all the hallmarks um, of the, the potential for that happening. Um, and then last, I just want to mention, folks. You, you, Mike, you talked about um, you know the the precious metals being still one of the um, attractively valued uh, uh, you know sectors out there. Just released a video yesterday uh, from Jeff Clark. Uh, It's an hour presentation going through uh, his top picks for the precious metals mining stocks that he thinks would perform the best. He's talking like 10 bagger, 20 bagger returns. Should we indeed have a catch up phase here in the precious metals where their appreciation catches up to the type of appreciation that we've seen in other? commodities this year. So folks, if you haven't seen that, go to Wealthion.com slash Clark and you can watch it there for free. All right, John, I'll let you have the last word here as we wrap things up for this week. Um, any parting words of
2: advice for today's viewers? Just to, to not lose sight of where we likely are in the cycle, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll reference back like you just did, Adam, to the video that Adam, Hunt, Adam, uh, I'm sorry, uh, David Hunter did with you a few weeks back. And our, our message there was, and, and I think his as well, is like, you know, his, his call for a near term melt up wasn't, wasn't a call to say, hey, everybody should be plowing their money in the stock market, because he, he did call for, you know, up to an 80% meltdown after that. And our, our point in that was just to understand what that kind of move likely represents and, and what it likely will do to one's psychology and to be in control and aware of that, um, to not get sucked in. Because the likelihood of getting sucked in and getting out successfully is very low. Um, But instead, to use that as almost fortification to say, hey, I know what this is all about, it's craziness, and I'm gonna be strong and I'm not gonna let myself get sucked into the craziness because I know that uh, very high likelihood there'd be much better times, much safer times ahead to be investing like a true investor and not a a, um, a panicked, um, you know, FOMO, uh, anguished, um, you know, investor that these markets, are making everybody want to be. And it's it's not to point the finger at anybody. These are very difficult emotions to wrestle with. That's why so many people get sucked in.
1: Yep, and that's why we are so um, emphatic in recommending that people work with a professional financial advisor when it comes to managing their financial portfolios given the current era, um, to, to work with a professional who can take the emotion out of your decision-making process, right? And if you're a new viewer here, Um, you heard Michael say, focus on capital preservation going forward. Uh, You've heard uh, what what Mike and John here have had to say. Um, If if you have a good financial advisor to be your guide through the type of future that's coming, great, stick with them. But if not, Mike and John and their team at New Harbor, they offer free portfolio uh, consultations where they'll sit down with you, They'll look at your current allocation, they'll look at your goals, they'll look at what they think the future holds, and they'll just tell you what they think you should do. And you can do whatever you want with that. You can you know, implement it yourself, you can implement it with your existing uh, advisor, or if you decide you might wanna work with these guys, there's the opportunity to do that, but there is no uh, commitment to do that for having these free consultations. If you'd be interested in having one, stick around at the end of the video, we tell you how to schedule one, it only takes you a couple of seconds to do so. All right. If you want to see continued great interviews like this with folks like Michael Every and the other great guest experts we've had on this channel, please help support this channel by hitting the like button first and then clicking the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And if you'd like to see which guest experts we have coming on this program in the near future or even better suggest ones that you'd like to see, just follow me online at at Menlo Bear, I do look at every suggestion that people make there. All right, John and Mike, well, another great week. Um, and uh, whatever the markets do from here, we'll be tracking it together on this program. I'll see you guys next week. Everybody else, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to WealthyOn.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold. And when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, We think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we've put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.